way, this is Jen Wright. She is going to read the word for us this morning. Uh, this is from Acts uh, 2, or sorry, 4, 23 uh, through the end of the chapter. And uh, just so you know, some of you are in small groups. Um, I'll forget to say this if I don't say it right now. Wrote the guides for this uh, for the last half of this chapter, but as I was studying it again this week, realized this is a lot more about prayer than it is about just generosity. Um, so in your small groups, read what we're reading. Um, use the guide just the way it is, but read the whole thing, 23 uh, through 37, okay? I'll try to email somebody and remind you guys that, but right now you're hearing it. Okay. Jen. <laughs> On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The word of the Lord. Thanks. All right, have a seat. So uh, over the past month, and we're ending this today, uh, beginning a new series next week, but over the past month, if you've been with us, we have been recasting vision uh, for our church uh, for our life together as a church uh, body, and we've been calling this series DTR, right? Define the relationship. And uh, I've been encouraging us that as we define uh, our relationship with the Lord, uh, because He has a defined relationship to us, uh, we are not created or saved to live in a vague and undefined relationship with the Lord, but a really defined one. As we define our relationship with the Lord and His body, and we live in that defined relationship, uh, the fruit of that spills out into every aspect of our lives, our relationships, our work, our community, our city, all right? It's a big part of what uh, Jesus meant when he was talking in John 15 when he says, remain in me, remain in this kind of defined relationship with me, because apart from me, you can't do anything, and then remaining in me like a vine in the branch, wow. 
It's Walgreens, guys. My prescription is ready. Unbelievable. <laughs> All right. That is a first. I don't even, didn't even know I had it in my back pocket. As we remain in him, as we live in that divine, <laughs> everybody's like, how's, okay, what was I saying? Uh, the fruit of that spills out into our community, into our lives, into our city. So we've been looking at what, what things defined or what devotions defined the early church in Acts and have been really operating out of this verse, Acts 2.42, that they devoted themselves or they continually were giving themselves over to these four practices, or like four pillars of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread, which is something we're going to do this morning, and to prayer. And we've taught through apostles' teaching, devoted to that, and fellowship. So apostles' teaching, I'm just going to kind of go over these real quick. Uh, these were the community habits, the life liturgies that they devoted themselves to on a regular basis, weekly basis, that continually were bringing them into a fresh experience of God's devotion to them. They weren't things they did to prove to God we're devoted to you. It was actually the, the very opposite. We're going to do these things, and in doing these things together, we're going to experience your devotion to us. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. First and foremost, they gathered to be taught regularly and shaped by God's Word and worship and things like small groups in one another's homes. And we argued that, that the Word of God, it was like oxygen that like you and I need to breathe. It was vital to their very life as a community. They were devoted to that. They devoted themselves also to fellowship. We talked about this last week. We hear that word, and it's kind of very generic and vanilla, and um, I don't know why the word shmarmy is in my brain right now. It wasn't shmarmy, but they devoted themselves to fellowship, which was a deep sense of ownership, of care, of investment, of service to one another. They, they felt responsible in a good and healthy way for one another's growth in the gospel. And we do this, we practice this in our community with things like small groups or what we just sent our kids to do in Kidtown right now. There is a group of people who are saying we are taking ownership and feeling felt responsibility for stewarding the gospel into the lives of our K through fifth graders, right? It was a community that that decided we are going to be implicated in one another's lives for love's sake because Jesus was implicated in our lives for love's sake. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and today we're going to talk about their devotion to prayer, and specifically how their devotion to prayer led to a very spirit-enabled or spirit-led generosity, that the prayer life of the early church was, was robust, and that led to them being of one heart and one mind, and that one heart and one mind led to them being an incredibly generous community, not just internally with one another, but beyond that. In the early church, in the first century, people who weren't even believers, Romans and Greeks, they actually referred to Christians of the day as the third race, that you're actually from another race of people. You are ambassadors of a different kingdom because how you live in this world, Roman people would literally say they love and take care of fellow Romans who aren't even a part of what they're doing better than we take care of our own. Their prayer life led to an internal and beyond itself generosity. All right. So what Jen just read for us, let me give us a little bit of context because she read about a prayer 
basically a prayer party that they had that led to, kind of reinfused this generosity. It says there at the very beginning, verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported everything that had happened at the hands of the chief priests and the elders. On their release. So what was going on at this time? Well, between Acts 2.42 and what we just read, uh, Peter and John have been pretty active. They've been preaching. They've been doing some miracles, right? And I, yes, I said miracles. Some people say, people tease me about how I say miracles. Mi- miracles? I think the Midwestern people say miracles. Miracle? Miracle? Say it out loud for me. Miracles, right. Peter and John have been doing miracles, right? And they have, uh, they've just been released from prison, effectively. They've been imprisoned by the chief priests and the elders. Uh, they've been brought before them, and these chief, the chief priests, Caiaphas, the religious leaders of the day, uh, the teachers of the law, they were basically the religious establishment. They were the power brokers of what was going on at the time. And they had basically arrested Peter and John and brought them uh, in to question them and to apply pressure on them to stop talking about Jesus, to stop doing things in his name, to stop talking about the resurrection because Peter had just healed this man who had been born lame, right? He spent 40 years of his life being dropped off at this gate called Beautiful where he would beg for money. That was his, basically his life was to sit there and beg for people to give him money and Peter and John were walking in front of them one day, and he asked them for some money, and you've maybe heard this before. Peter says, you know, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk, and he walked, right? People were blown away. What is going on? What is this power that we're seeing actually happen in the life of this man and through Peter and John? And so the religious elites, they were freaked out. They brought him in to question him, and basically they were trying to shut them down. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about his resurrection. People are coming to faith in great numbers, and these religious leaders are freaked out because they're losing their power, they're losing their influence, and in fact, that's why they killed Jesus in the first place. They didn't like that Jesus was turning upside down the apple cart of their leadership. And so they try to put an end to Peter and John doing anything more in the name of Jesus. They put them on the witness stand, they question them. I mean, this is like the... You know, basically, like if you or I got called to a Senate subcommittee to testify, like think about that, the intensity of that, right? Like you get a phone, I get a phone call, you know, from somebody who says, hey, we need to talk and I can start feeling the tummy rumbles, right? Like, oh gosh, what are they going to bring up? This is like being brought into a giant public sphere to be put on trial. And yet what happens when they question them, Peter... He doesn't back down. In fact, he got bolder. And he confronted them on their role in Christ's crucifixion. So this is before what we read. This is Acts 4, this is 10 and 13. He says, then know this. This is how he responds to them. Know this, that you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, yeesh, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man... This lame man stands before you healed. And it says, when they, the chief priests and the the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So that, that interaction happens and they kind of 
go and huddle up after that moment, and they say, okay, what are we going to do now? Because everybody knows that they healed this guy, and everybody hears what they're saying, and that they're saying that it happened because of who Jesus is, because of his resurrection. So they order them to stop. They say this, but, but to stop this thing from spreading any further amongst the people. You hear it? We're trying to contain this thing, contain Jesus, contain what's going on. We must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So we're giving them a, a stern warning here. And what does Peter do again? I'm not going to stop. It says they called him in again and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter, and then the passage says, Peter filled with the Spirit, Peter replies this, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, so basically this is what I'm going to do. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go because they could not decide how to punish them. Because all of the people were praising God for what happened. So they get called to the principal's office, the serious principal's office, and they get the heavy, heavy warning. Stop it. Don't do this. Don't talk about them. Don't do anything more in his name. No more healing people. No more talk about Jesus. And remember, this is Peter who, again, cowered Peter around the barrel fire just about a week ago when the little girl said, don't you know who he is? He's like, I swear I don't know who he is. Now all of a sudden, because Peter's a witness to the resurrection and because Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter is bold and courageous in saying, you go ahead and judge what you think's right to do right now, but I know what I'm going to do. It's like in Joshua 24 when Joshua reconfirms the covenant with Israel and he says, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord Peter is saying, I am in a covenant with this Jesus, not with you. You aren't the thing that has power over my life. He is the thing that has power over my life, and I'm going to talk about him. Now, think about this. I just want you to sit in this for a, situa or for a second. You get called into the power broker's office. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You get called before the authorities. I do think a Senate subcommittee is a pretty good example here. And you get released, you get warned, you get released, because they can't figure out what to do with you. People are pumped about what's going on, but you can clearly got, you have this group of people that's in opposition. I know for me, I'm thinking about this, I'm like, Whew. all right, like time to lay low for a little bit, catch a, catch a breath. I was talking with Richard Cowan, he said, I would have gone and eaten my feelings at Chick-fil-A right? Like what, what would you go do after getting out of that meeting? What? Oh, who said it? Yes, Caitlin. I wouldn't go pray. I'm glad you would, but I would go eat my feelings or go get some friends together and be like, oh my gosh, can you believe what happened? You know, I hope that never happens again. They do get together with their friends, and they do do what Kaylin just said. They come together, and they report all that happened, but then they throw this prayer party. 
together. They don't lay low. They don't let their fear dictate what it could have dictated. They live in the faith that they've been given and in the confidence that God is in control of what's going on right now. And so they pray, and what happens, we're going to walk through this prayer. They basically pray like this, fill up our tanks because we're heading back out. Not we're going to shrink back, but we know what we're called to do and we're going. Fill up our tanks. Basically pray like this, don't change our circumstances. Don't change what's going on. Change me so that I can go out and face these circumstances. Because it's, it's rough out there, but I'm going. And so they pray. So let's look at how they pray. Because this is one of the devotions of the other church. They were continually giving themselves over to prayer. And I don't know about you, whether you feel like you have a prayer life or like we have a prayer life, but one of my hopes for us this year is, is that by the end of this year, you would say that my prayer life has radically changed as a result of being a part of this community, that I've learned how to pray, that I pray more regularly, and that my prayers have actually taken on some different forms. Because praying, I mean, I saw somebody said that your sighs are are prayers to God, right? Like, if God knows and captures all your tears in a bottle, is what Scripture says, like, even just your groans, our, our form of prayer. I've heard it said that swearing is the lowest form of prayer, right? It's basically help, right? But his disciples, Jesus' disciples had to ask him, teach us how to pray. We have the book of Psalms, which is a phenomenal tool that we've been given in Scripture to teach us all about the dynamic of prayer life. But let's just look at how they prayed right here, because their prayer to he- in here was kind of like, really? This is what you prayed? This is what you chose to pray. So they get everybody together. They heard all this. They go back to their own people. They reported everything that happened. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And here's what they pray. First thing, sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Okay. What in the world are they praying that for? Why'd they go to the creation account in Genesis 2? Just think about that for a second. That's a long, 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 long time ago from what they're going through right then, right? I'm going all the way back to the beginning, to the moment when God, you spoke the world, you made the world. You spoke the world into existence. What are they doing? Here's what I believe they're doing, is that they're saying that what's going on right now, because things are getting shaken up right now, things are very difficult right now. When things get difficult, they're modeling something here for us, y'all. When things get shaken, I have to, and we do, go to something, some foundation to stand on in those moments. I got to go back or somewhere to something firm to stand on. And what they're doing in this moment by going all the way back to Genesis 2 is saying this, God, since this whole thing started, you are in control because you created it all. You're God. You're in control. 
Things are scary right now. We are freaked out right now. These are difficult right now. I'm going to go back to the beginning. And here's the principle for us. I would tell you this. In your prayer life, when things are difficult in your life, what foundation do you go to? And you have to go back as far as you have to go back to find something firm to stand on. Okay? I got to go back as far as I have to to find something solid to stand on. Here's an example for me. Many of you know that I'm adopted. Many of you know that I was born to a 15-year-old mom, 16-year-old dad who lived all the way across the country. My mother was shipped to Indiana to spare her family the shame all the way from basically the border of Wyoming, Nebraska. God put me in the family that he put me in. She was in no position to be my mom at the time, nor for my father, birth father to be my father, and he gave me a father and a mother. Oftentimes, when things, and they do, get hard and difficult, I'm afraid about the current, present, or the future, many times I will go back to that story, my adoption story, and realize God was at work for me doing things in my life way before I had the ability to make any decisions about Him or anything for that matter. God was sovereignly at work taking care of me. You see it? In the moment of being afraid and being shaken up, I got to go back. I got to go back. But sometimes I got to go back further than my personal story. I think this is tough for us because we are all, you know, raucous individualists in this day and age, right? You are the center of your story. Well, that's not what Scripture says. And that's what they're practicing right now. We're not just going to go back to like, man, Lord, you've been faithful to me in my lifetime. No, Lord, you have been faithful to me and to all of us from the beginning of time. You see what they're doing? Sometimes you have to go back further, especially if your personal story is a train wreck. But if you've been saved, if you've been brought into this family, into the family of God, your individual story isn't the only part of your story. You're caught up in a bigger story. And in that bigger story, you're not the center of the story. God is the center of the story. And fear and hardship and situations like Peter and John are going through and the the early church was going through, fear and hardship always shrinks the story to right now, and it always puts me at the center of the story. And so their prayer, just by praying, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you see what they're doing? They're going out and back and saying, I've got to go far enough back in the story to realize I'm not the center of the story, and God, you are. So they go to creation. The second thing they do, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, the father David. Why do the nations rage? And what do they do here? They're quoting Psalm 2. And David, one of his prayers, one of his prophetic prayers. And then he talks about Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles in verse 27. People of Israel in the city who conspired against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They go to creation and then they go to Revelation. God, you created everything, you're in control. And then God, through your word, you said this was going to happen. This, this crucifixion of Jesus, this death and resurrection, this is not something that is a surprise to us. This is something you said was going to occur. You said it through David in Psalm 2. You said that people like Herod and Pilate and all these rulers would band together against the Lord. None of this is an accident. 
Verse 28, they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. You hear what they're praying? You are working right now, Lord, your plan of redemption. Things may feel out of control, but they are not out of control. You are in control. They are praying themselves through the revelation of Scripture. We're going to go back to what Scripture has said about creation. We're going to go back to the revelation of God through His Word. And ultimately, we're going to claim this, which is, is, is the beginning of prayer, sovereignty. I'm going to pray myself into a place Praying God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? The word shaped their prayers. I'm going to pray myself into a place of remembering you are sovereign. And therefore, what I am experiencing, it has to be framed in or hemmed in or find its place in that story. If I don't know the story, if I don't have the word hidden in my heart, if I'm not coming and being reminded of the truth, I will actually begin to believe, God, you're not in control. You, you, you don't have a handle on things. Uh, fear will win the end of the day. They pray creation. They pray God's revelation, His Word, and then they acknowledge His sovereignty. And as a result, they experience what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, therefore we do not lose heart, although outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. They weren't there at creation, but they're fixing their eyes on what is unseen, what the Lord has done. And it's allowing them to walk in their light and momentary troubles believing that there's an eternal glory that is being worked through what's going on. They prayed His Word, His creation, His revelation, His sovereignty. And after coming into an experience, being reminded of His sovereignty, praying His sovereignty, now they can ask, supply us what we need. You hear it? Sovereignty, now supply. Because they wouldn't even know what to ask for if they hadn't prayed this first. I'm going to pray your sovereignty and your word, and then I'm going to ask. Now give us what we need. And what do they ask for? Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your Holy Spirit. And after they prayed the place... They were meeting and was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You're sovereign. You, you created everything. You said this was going to happen. Now, because you are sovereign and you are in control, give us what we need. Supply what we need. Not give us a break from this hardship, but enable us to play our part in this very hard moment, in this plan. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Think about all the things. I was thinking about what are the things I would immediately have prayed for. And I'm like, I don't know if I would have prayed for boldness to go back in. Give me courage. How do they pray this? God's word shaped their prayers. 
and then their prayers and the Spirit shaped their words. I'll say that again. God's Word shaped their prayers, and then their prayers in the Spirit, what they asked for in the name of Jesus, shaped what they went and did. It shaped their words. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The place was shaken, and they spoke the Word of God boldly. I was thinking about this, and man, we don't have time to go into this, but Remember in Acts 2, earlier at Pentecost, they already had received the Holy Spirit, right? And I know we could preach a whole sermon on, like, is this like the second dose of the ghost? Like, what's going on here? Here's how I'd like you to think of it in a very simple term. Uh, They did already have the Holy Spirit, but part of the Holy Spirit's role, Jesus talks about this in John 14 to 17, he says, I'm going to come and remind you of the truth, I'm going to apply the truth to your heart. I'm actually, think of the Holy Spirit like this. The Holy Spirit is an agitating force. Like I was, I, I brought a can of, of Coke, right? Everything that makes Coca-Cola is in here, right? It's all in here. But what happens if I start to do this? Like if I open that can of Coke without doing this, just drink it, right? But what's going on when I'm doing this? Somebody explain the science of it behind me. Some chemical reaction is happening right now. Nothing is being added into the actual Coke, but something's happening in this agitation that makes it possible that when... Should I? No? How many no's? How many yeses? Oh, man, a Coke and a smile. Yeah. That was kind of anticlimactic, I know. I should have had some Mentos to put in there. The Holy Spirit is like that. It wasn't that they were being given the Holy Spirit for the first time again. The Holy Spirit brings a fresh experience of God's power, of God's presence, of God's truth. And, and just like that, he shakes them up, and when he shakes them up and then pops the top, it releases, right? It spills out. It's explosive. It's dynamic. Galatians 5.25 says this, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What does that actually infer? It infers that you can have, and you are if you're a Christian, you're the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you but you can completely fall out of step with it. Think about that for a second. I can live as though I am not the temple of the living God, as though I do not have the Holy Spirit, as though I'm not under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying, hey, you've been given this new spirit, you have this new life in you, stay in step with it. And prayer is one of the primary ways that we stay in step with the Lord. Prayer and praying God's word Praying the scriptures, definitely. Because the Holy Spirit, he's not doing his own rogue thing, right? He's in step with the Father and with the Son. And so like a three-legged race, or I guess that would be a four-legged race, become like the fifth leg, we are all bound together, actually staying in step with the will of the Father. I experienced this in Northern Ireland. We used to do mission trips over there, and one of the things that we would do and I thought it was kooky at the time. It's like, really? 
it's going to be like such a long night. We would do these coffee bars. I think I talked about them, nights with the Americans, right? Come meet the Americans. But we would have a team of people. So let's say there are 20 high schoolers. Four of those 20 would be in a room, and they would spend the whole night praying five hours straight. Imagine telling a 16-year-old you're going to pray for five straight hours. What? I was praying for five straight seconds. And this old Irish guy's like, no, we're going to put you in a room, and we're going to kind of feed your requests some, but just pray, you know? Just ask God to do things. We're here. We're trying to relationally minister the gospel and, and bring reconciliation between Catholics and Protestants with the gospel. So they would lock us in this room as high school students. And we were like, you want to start like popcorn style or like, what are we going to do here? We just start praying. Well, I'll tell you what, by the end of the trip and the end end of the night and the end of every trip to a kid, what they would say was the most powerful part of the trip. Here's why. Those of us who were out there in the room on the nights that we weren't in the prayer room, we're out there trying to connect and, you know, tell us about this and share the gospel. The people in the prayer room, all, all they've got, all they've got is just praying, Lord, would you, would you do something out there in this conversation? Would you use this? What was amazing at the end of the night was to come back together and realize that the things that they were praying for were happening simultaneously in the room, and there was nothing that they were doing other than asking God to do what only He could do and make it happen. They were they were the agitators. The Holy Spirit was agitating them to pray, and then He was agitating out in the room, right? And dynamic stuff was happening as a result of this prayer. So they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were agitated, and then they spoke the Word of God boldly, and they became a boldly generous community. So they weren't just filled. They didn't just pray, you know, to that end oh, Lord, hear our prayers. But that prayer actually filled them with purpose, and they spoke words, and they spoke with their actions in a profound way. It says there, they were one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Now, in my opinion, especially in today's climate, that's as big, if not bigger, of a miracle than somebody lame being healed. I'll say that again. A group of people not claiming their possessions as their own is as miraculous as somebody being healed from a disability. That if a community of people actually got to a point that says, they, these are my possessions, but I'm not going to treat any of this as though it's mine. Think of how miraculous that would be in our day and age. Because that was what was going on. So, such one heart, one spirit through prayer that they had a radical self-forgetfulness. An extreme openness with what had been given to them by God. Maybe you've heard, heard it phrased like this, do I have things or do things have me? Well, in, in this church, in the way that the Spirit was leading them through prayer, they didn't have, or the, their things did not have them. They had things, and their things were free to be given to whoever had need because they were caught up in something bigger than the race to more for me. They were free from that yoke of slavery and able to meet needs 
because their needs weren't their immediate focus. Which when I read this, I'm like, man, I'm, I, that's where I'm lame. That's where I'm stuck by the gate. That's where I need, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Get up and walk out of that, Dave. Out of your lameness that all of this stuff is yours, that your time is yours, that your money is yours. You're a cripple. And you've been set free from that, from living a life like that. That's lame living. To live like everything is mine and this is all about me. I ain't the center of the story and neither are you. Jesus' death and resurrection has freed us from that yoke of slavery. And prayer is what brings us into contact with that reality, agitates us, brings us into a fresh experience. That's why they said at the end there, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, right? That there were no needy persons. They were generous. They were intentional. They spoke about Jesus and they lived about Jesus. And as a result, it became an absolutely magnetic community. So that's my prayer for us. It's my challenge to us. That's my DTR for us. Would we be devoted to those four things this year? The apostles' teaching, to God's word, to this kind of fellowship, this kind of koinonia, this kind of ownership and responsibility for one another, beautiful care, to breaking bread, coming to the, the Lord's table and being in one another's homes and opening our homes through hospitality to those in need and prayer. Would you pray Pray God's sovereignty. I mean, that's just one model of it that we get here today. That you come into his sovereign care and then say, supply me what I need. Fill me up to go back out. To be someone who speaks boldly and lives boldly for Jesus. So we come to the table. This is part of why he gave this sacrament. was to say, you're going to have to spiritually feed on me all the time if you're going to live like that. You, you need me to fill you up so that you can actually go out and walk in that truth. And so we're going to come to the table. You all want to go ahead and, and get ready, uh, those who are leading us in worship, to this meal that spiritually fills us so that we can experience the Lord's presence and his provision and to feed on his promises to us. Remember, Jesus says, this is one of the promises of God that nobody, I don't ever hear anybody ever claim this one. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise. But take heart, I have overcome the world, right? So <clears throat> he knows this world, world's going to be hard. So you have to take his heart, which is what we do when we come to this table. We feed on his heart for us, which what does this table say? This is my body, which is for you. I am for you. I am here for you. I am with you. You are not alone. Do this in remembrance of me. I have made a covenant with you in my blood. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. From creation to glorification, I am in control of this. Now step into that story, child. We step into that story when we come to this table. So if you're in Christ, if you've received him as Savior and Lord, run to this table. If you're in Christ and gluten-free, run to this side of the table. <laughs> Feed on him. Pray. Ask the Lord to bring you into an experience of his sovereignty and then supply what you need to go be the husband, the friend, the co-worker, 
the parent, the whatever he's called you to do in the sphere of life, send you back out bold, courageous because of who he is. If you're not in Christ this morning, and maybe you're stuck in that place like the religious leaders where you're trying to control everything, the invitation is to come to faith in him and then come and eat the meal that declares you have faith in him. So if you want to talk about meeting Jesus, come find me. Come ask somebody in this room, say, hey, I don't know anything about what that dude was talking about, and why did he shake up a can of Coke? Come ask somebody about that, because they'll have something to tell you. And then it also invites us, Paul invites us to examine our hearts. And maybe there's a place in your life that you're just saying, this is off limits, Lord. This place in my life, yeah, you, you can be my Savior, but you can't be my Lord. And the Lord's saying, no, 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 I want to step in. And maybe it's, maybe it's your stuff. Maybe your stuff has you. And you're claiming it's yours. And he's saying, would you just release your grip on that, on you? So that I can actually do something with that that would blow your mind. So let the Lord examine your heart. So I'm going to read the words of institution. Pray for us. When you're ready, come down. Put your hands out. Someone will serve you communion. If you need prayer, cross your arms. I'd be happy to pray for you. Um, there's trash cans on the side for your stuff. So hear the words uh, from the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we love you. Uh, thank you uh, that we clearly see at this table uh, that you love us. Pray uh, that you would remind us, uh, Lord, like these uh, early apostles and disciples prayed, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you've created the world and everything in it, and that nothing that is happening, even though it feels like it's completely out of control, is not under your sovereign hand. Uh, that's mysterious, Lord, uh, but we know that it's true. Um, in these moments, it's hard to see sometimes. So would you anchor us in something more ancient than our own experience? And would you fill us up, Lord, that we would be like these early churchgoers uh, who would boldly proclaim your name uh, and live like those who have been captured by the love of God? In your name, amen.